Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Hello to you all out there. Thank you for joining me again for my adventures in remote podcasting. Today, I have the tremendous pleasure of bringing you my interview with comedy genius and king of Twitter, Patton Oswalt. Patton joined the show to talk about his new stand-up special, I Love Everything, which is exactly the dose of big laughs and positivity you need right now. I know I certainly did. And I highly recommend, if you haven't already seen it, watching it in tandem with his previous stand-up special, Annihilation. It's an excellent double feature. We also talked about Patton's upbringing and the influence of his steady Eddie parents, his early years in comedy, and what he considers his first moment of success. He also talks about learning from the setbacks, too. Plus, we'll hear his advice for the over 50 set and how he's spending his time sheltering in place. Enjoy, everybody. Here's Patton Oswalt. Hi, Patton. I feel like I've been living with you for a little bit in prep for this video. Yes, we've been getting ready. So When I first knew that I was going to get a chance to interview, obviously, I was got your special. Uh, I Love Everything, which is your new special coming out on Netflix. And that sent me into a rabbit hole of watching everything you had done before. There's a couple of things that really stand out to me. The first is the Sadness Bowl with Kentucky Fried Chicken. I remember just thinking that was the most brilliant thing ever. And then God. the other thing that I thought was so good, the role that you had in young adults, I was like, this guy is so talented. So those are the two things for me <laughs> between your stand-up wow. and your acting. Thank you, Krista. Yeah, no, definitely. So I want to talk, obviously, we're here to talk about your special and everything that's going to come after and came before it. But the first thing that struck me was just the optimism of it and the lighting of it. And maybe because it's we're in quarantine here, it just bathed me in hope. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, it was almost like a rebuke to all of the death and negation that I had been dealing with. So instead of digging deeper into it, I it's like I dug deeper into hope and sunshine almost as a it was almost like a re-surging of the life force i guess mm -hmm. um so i think that was in, in, looking back on it it really does feel like it was an unconscious i don't want to say strategy but it was okay that each if each of my specials is a snapshot of how i'm doing at the time then that is that snapshot of of god damn it i'm going to be hopeful and powerful and and optimistic, which is now going to be very ironic uh, to watch in a month when we're might be even in even worse uh, straits than we are now. We'll see, but um, uh, hopefully, it'll give 
people some more hope and optimism, I guess. I don't know. I know. It's kind of fortuitous timing. Well, I don't want to spoil all the bits in the special for people, but I will say that you talking about eating the healthy grown-up cereal was so good. It was so funny. And you really nail L.A.'s obsession with driving to go hiking. Yeah, the the having – L.A. is all about having to drive somewhere to walk, whereas New Yorkers are just – you leave your apartment, you walk around, like mm-hmm. you're exercising all day. So yeah, that kind of, it's such a culturally different thing to describe to people of where are you, where are you going? I'm going hiking. Well, why don't you just walk around? Well, I got to get in my car and go to like a hiking. Why? <laughs> like it, that, it's amazing. Well, also you really touch upon the condition of being middle-aged in Los Angeles too, which <laughs> oh, I love. Where you just have to, I mean, again, LA, I, I think New York is a better place to be middle-aged because People are just what they are there. Um, and, and it's all about just, we just need you to be the best, whatever you are, because you're, we just need you for this work or whatever. We need you to function. But in LA, there's such a premium on youth. That they're just, there's a lot of people here that um, would be great if they embraced their 50s. They would look amazing, but nope, they're 23. I'm going to be 23 forever. And it's very sad when you see someone in their 50s who's decided, no, I'm 23. It's like, you're not. You're not. Stop it. Stop it. You're not 23. Uh, Well, after I watched uh, I Love Everything, I went back and watched Annihilation, and they feel like almost companion pieces to me. Well, yeah. I mean, I Love Everything feels like the the swimming out of the, you know, Annihilation was I'm rising out of the gloom, but then this is that guy that we saw now gets to walk around in the sunshine a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know? I love that. How long did it take to hone the special? I'm always curious with writers and comedians, how long that process takes. Yeah. I mean, different comedians have different paces. There's some that can do special a year with me. It's usually like a year and a half. I, I do. I recorded that special in September. It's going to come out this May. I'll probably have another special ready uh, at the beginning of next year, I guess, although or maybe I won't if I can't go out to clubs. I, that All that feels like a moot point, but my pace tends to be every year and a half I have something new. And how important is the club rhythm in order to getting it right? Is it almost impossible to be a comedian without an audience? Yeah, to me it is. I, I just, it feels weird. You want, part of comedy is not just hearing an audience react, but it's seeing the surprise in a comedian watching what an audience will and won't react to. There are certain things that you write that you don't even think are all that funny. You don't even think of the punchline. And then as you're doing the bit, it ends up getting a way bigger laugh than the thing that you thought was the joke. And those moments of surprise are so captivating to watch and experience. I just don't think comedy can survive without live audiences. I just don't think it'll, it'll work. Or it won't work in the form that we, I mean, that's also, by the way, I'm talking about a form that I'm familiar and comfortable with. There could be new forms of this coming that we can't even imagine right now that somebody will find a way to master. So, you know, we'll see. Right. We're in this odd period of ingenuity. Potentially. We, we never thought we'd be Zoom calling and uh, the working from homes and all of that. What has been the most surprising thing you've learned about this time in quarantine? I think one of them, I mean, the th- one of the things that isn't surprising is, you know, when you're given 19 hours to do something, you'll take 19 hours to do it. 
um, you know, I, I can fill all day with like emptying the garbage <laughs> because what the hell, you know, but also I think a, a lot of people have those stacks of books, lists of movies, uh, to do, um, lists, uh, charts of things are going to get around to of, Oh, but my job and the, all this other stuff I got to do. And now that they don't have this, it's almost like, I feel like there's a culling of the to-do lists that are going on where half of everything everyone thought was they were going to get to someday. They're like, that wasn't worth it. I don't need to do that. So maybe that'll be a good thing too. People will actually um, figure out now they're having time to figure out what exactly they want to do with themselves. I'm sure there'll be negative effects to that as well. I think, you know, we saw the way the divorce rate went up in China. Mm -hmm. I think that might happen in America too, unfortunately. So I don't know. I mean, right now we're, we're talking, um, you know, a little more than a month into this for America. It's, and I, uh, here's one thing I've learned is to, I aggressively do not try to predict anything anymore because of look at what has happened day to day with this thing, day to day with, um, you know, how the public is reacting to, I never thought there'd be people out protesting in the street to, and risking getting a virus so they can go back to helping millionaires stay millionaires. Like that's how broken our system is. And, uh, you know, and, and the fact that multi-billion dollar corporations are the first to get bailouts is nuts. I don't know. So right now I'm aggressively, I, I aggressively don't know anything at this point. I don't, and I just, I'm not going to, until I see it happen. Well, I know one thing and that's, I really suck at math because the homeschooling, the geometry and oh, the, my God. the math, I can't yeah, do it. <laughs> Yeah, my, my, my math knowledge uh, tops out at a fourth grade level. Mm, same, same. I was literally yes. in tears with my younger son trying to do the story problem. And I was like, have they never gotten rid of the story problems when someone's on a train with so many oranges oh, and they're going to meet Alan who's on another train with apples. <laughs> I was couldn't even get through yeah. the third sentence. <laughs> but half of the story problems seemed, they feel so wistful and sad now, like, you know, Marcy gets on a train leaving Chicago. She gets to go on a train. Oh my God. Like, why doesn't she just zoom call the guy? Like she gets to, Oh man. Like you can't even get through the depression of imagining the people in the word problems having their lives. You know, Jed goes to the market and buys four apples. He actually goes out to a market. Oh my God. What the, you know, so. Yeah, it is funny. The idea of just like going outside is, is, Amazing. Um, all right. I want to take you back a little bit. You're the child of, of a Marine, right? A career military mm-hmm. person. I am as well. I, my dad started oh. as an unlisted man and went all the way through and was a career officer until he retired. Uh, what about that kind of consistency and upbringing have you taken into your career? Because I look at it, it's kind of a leading question, because I look at it and mm-hmm. you've got a crazy work ethic. It just seems like even on your IMDb page, it's like you're constantly in motion, doing things, creating things, writing things. And your Twitter mm-hmm. alone is a is a beautiful thing to behold. But can you talk to me a little bit about that and how you find it influencing, you know, who you are right now? Well, I had uh, I had two different tastes of, of the military brat upbringing in that when I was super young, 
we moved pretty much every year until I was about six. We just moved every year. It was just different people. Uh, so I got a taste of this, like Ohio, then California, then back to Virginia, then Arizona, then like just all over the place, these little touches of the world. And then when I got to start actual first grade, my dad had this amazing flash of remembering growing up with his dad, who was a career military air force pilot. Um, and was like, I never got to really have a steady circle of friends. We constantly moved all through. I went to, went to like seven different high schools and he was like, I don't want that experience for my son. So he took a desk job in DC. He was a test pilot. We were living in, you know, Anaheim. And then when we moved back to Virginia, he said, I'm going to take a desk job so we can just settle down and stop moving so they can have the experience of actually, you know, growing up in a community with people. And so I had, it's like I had a taste of the world. And then I had this really almost annoyingly solid base. It was the seventies in the suburbs. And a lot of my friends had those kind of me generation parents are like, I got to find myself guys, man. I'm just <laughs> as cool as you. And, it, and a lot of them were basically being raised by teenagers. You know, there, there was a lot of parenting in the seventies. It was like, it's an, it's a 12 year old being raised by a 15 year old, essentially in, in a 45 year old's body. So mm-hmm. a lot of my friends had no stability in their lives, divorces, affairs, all kinds of, you know, drug use and stuff. My parents were so steady Eddie that I had that amazing base and it was almost like i saw that if i want to if you want to just do the stuff that you want to do you've got to work twice as hard than as when you just take a job somewhere and maybe it's in something you like but um i i just didn't want that i work 50 weeks a year so i can have two weeks vacation like i just wanted to be interested all the time maybe it has to do with you know there's a fault in me maybe i don't have a Uh, enough patience or I don't have enough or I have too much of an ego but it was always like you have to work twice as hard if you want to be doing what you want to be doing and it's that you know the John Waters thing I work as hard as I do so I don't have to work for anybody else and that was Mm -hmm. always his credo and I before I even learned about John Waters that was just kind of my credo is you just got to work twice as hard. Mm -hmm. That hasn't changed even with your success. No because I, I, I also was very, very lucky in that when I started doing stand-up, I started in, in the summer of 1988, and that's when the boom was starting to collapse. Um, and I saw a lot of comedians who had been like, I got my hour material, it's set, all I got to do is go do headline, and I'll make hundred grand a year. And suddenly all of that collapsed, and I saw guys like getting cars repossessed, and homes padlocked, and divorces left and right, because they didn't, they were in it for... I want to get to a certain thing and then stop having to work at stuff. And I'm like, but I, the ones who lash are the ones who always want to create new stuff, always want to work at stuff, always want to make new things. So that's kind of always been my, um, I guess maybe partially it's out of fear, but partially it's also out of keeping yourself interested. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about Twitter a little bit. Your sentence structure is perfect. I'm amazed at how much you can convey in a sentence or even 140 characters or whatever it is. Have you always been that way? Is it a learned skill? Just the, it's surgical, it's so articulate. It's definitely a learned skill. I used, you know, I I still have problems with overwriting things sometimes, but I almost think like 
Twitter has become haiku for smart asses, where the way that haiku is so narrow and it's so restrictive that it kind of unlocks because you have to get through so many hurdles, you unlock new ways and clear ways of saying things. The fact that you watch that little, um, you know, uh, counter go down 240. <laughs> you've got you've to get your thought in and you either, if you're going to do a long one, you make, you make the trip worth it or you go, what is this shortest, most punchy way I can land this? idea so that it really gets out there so it just and it depends on your mood and there's never i don't think there's a correct way to do twitter even though you know even twitter ended up ha creating its own kind of hackneyed forms of you know the response of like ma'am this is a wendy's or mm -hmm. you know um the, the, the it, it created its own kind of joke format mm -hmm. which is interesting mm -hmm. that that there are things now on twitter that are considered hack there are ways to write stuff that are considered hack now so it's always, okay, how do I change? Because you don't want people screenshotting 50 of your tweets and going, oh, my God, they use the exact same structure for every joke that they do, you know? Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, but, but that came from years of being a stand-up and hanging out with stand-up comedians and getting called on your shit if you're being lazy. Mm -hmm. And you've written two books. Yeah, two memoirs. Mm -hmm. I haven't written any, like, a fictional thing yet. I you know, someday I would love to do that. But uh, right now it's because of my background as a standup. It's always about, well, here's something that I did and I'm trying to connect it to something more, you know, you unveil an actuality through looking at the mundane, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I hopefully was trying to do in my memoir somehow. Mm -hmm. But my second memoir, I call it the most boring addiction memoir ever written because it's not about drugs or sex or it's about uh, being addicted to going to this repertory movie theater every single night for like four years to the point of like mania. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that kind of delving into that seemingly mundane thing, but then connecting it to creativity and madness and development and stuff like that. Yeah. But you I hope, hope you yeah. always hope that that happens, you know? Well, listen, they're both New York times bestsellers. That's no small achievement there. That, that was very gratifying when that happened. That felt really good. Right? I can imagine. Yeah, and the, yeah. the love of movies, have you been, obviously, now we're not allowed to go outside. Have you discovered other films? Yeah, I've been watching a lot of stuff. I've been rewatching things that I already, you know, knew that I loved just to see if, so like I rewatched, um, I've been rewatching a lot of Kurosawa. I rewatched uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, I rewatched a lot of old film noirs and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, and then there's just new stuff. There's like newer, I have that free service Canopy, which you can get for free with a library card. It's a streaming service. Mm -hmm. And they have all kinds of like newer independent movies or like indie movies, but like separated by regions. So there's like Southern African indie movies about just people's lives and they're fascinating. And it's like these world cinemas you would never watch. Um, and, and, and genre stuff, you know, in other countries, action, mysteries, monster movies. Um, there's also a service called Shudder that is amazingly uh, gets really, it's all horror movies, but a lot of deeper stuff about, you know, issues of the day, you know, um, gender identity, disease, racism. Mm -hmm. A lot of people handle that through horror. They'll do like a sneak thing about it in a horror movie and it's all on Shudder. It's kind of amazing. I've always been bad at horror movies. I get too scared. <laughs> 
well, you get scared when they're when they're well made. Did you see there? But there's been this whole new generation of stuff. Like, did you see Hereditary or Midsommar or yeah. It Follows? Yes, yes, terrifying. I mean, I just was watching terrifying the, the others. Remember oh, that one? Nicole and, Kidman. And- yeah. And I was watching it with my two boys who were like preteen, 12 and 14. And the 12 year old's like, they're ghosts. I'm like, are you kidding me? So he oh, just. Like he called it early? Totally called it. And I remember seeing that film in real time and being terrified. And I'd still, I'm like, wow. And he's like, they're ghosts. Like, yeah. Just totally flat, kind of a okay boomer moment. Yeah, some of the parents at my daughter's school, because we're all doing like home learning, started a movie club where the kids all watch the same movie, you know, whenever they can. And then Thursdays they get together like on Zoom and discuss the themes of it. So we just watched uh, The Truman Show, which I hadn't seen since mm. I came out in 1998. And man, there is some – and that that was like kind of like pre-internet, pre-Twitter, pre – and uh, – it's eerie some of the stuff. Some of it's eerie some of the stuff it gets wrong and some of the stuff it absolutely nails. Gets right. Um, yep. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah. So just doing that kind of stuff and watching kids react. To, I showed my daughter Groundhog Day and we got to sit and talk about it afterward. Like, what do you think that means? Like to make every day amazing or do, just that kind of. It was really cool. And does she love movies. She share her. Enthusiasm. She loves some movies. I mean, she's 11. So there's a generation of kids now that the act of sitting and watching a film or a TV show, that's not like a big deal for them because everything gets pulled out of the air onto their device. Like it's just right there. Just watch it on your device. Why do you know? So there's not that spectacle or ritual of film watching that we grew up with or that appointment feeling of like oh it's Thursday night my a new episode of my tv show is on now the whole thing's there she's also gotten really really obsessed with that uh, american version of the office so she's just plowing through it on netflix and i'm just like you know oh that's right you don't have to wait every single week you can just watch like three or four at once mm-hmm. and i gotta trying to get her to parcel it out like let's watch an episode let's talk about it you know that kind of stuff has she seen uh, any of your stuff Obviously not the stand-up, I would assume. No. Pretty adult. Um, no, she's seen Ratatouille. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, went and saw Secret how Life of Pets. How good were you in Ratatouille? That's another yeah, well, one. That, how good is that movie? That movie's it's not, excellent. I, mean, I was given such amazing material. If I had been bad in that movie, that should have been a, like, well, you shouldn't be in movies if you can't make this stuff work. <laughs> this is a Brad Bird script with the Pixar team animating it. If if you're not good in this, you do not belong in films. So that felt really good that I was able to do that. I spoke to David Letterman recently, and he talked about something that really interests me, which is how your failures can sometimes feel bigger than your successes. How have you dealt with the ebbs and flows of your own success? Well, it's the reacting to the ebbs and flows that changes. You know, when you're young and you're starting out, the... Um, the ebbs, the bad nights, the the famous jokes, the you know career setbacks—they feel so catastrophic and so world-ending. And it's almost like as you get older, is when you realize that oh wait a minute, this doesn't end the world. You need to you need to fail, I think, to, in order to succeed. You need to because failing and then waking up the next day and like oh the world didn't end. Now you're over the fear of it, and now you can even do more 
bold and amazing stuff that you, you know, maybe did something that wasn't all that great. And the next day you just bounce right back. So if you can't bounce, you have to, and I, I don't wish humiliation or failure on anyone. I just, but I do wish it so that they can learn and become stronger and come out the other side and, and go, Oh yeah. Okay. I can take even more risks than I thought I did because that was a massive catastrophe. And I woke up and the sun came up the next day. And it didn't, you know, uh, and, and also what really helps is when you have, I think a lot of times early on, early success can really mess people up. They, mm-hmm. They'll have a really amazing set early on or have a crazy early career peak and they think, well, it's got to be at that level forever. And it's like, it's not. A lot, there's a lot of people that will just live in a tiny window of success forever. Whereas you go, enjoy that success while you have it, but it's going to keep changing back and forth. You still have to be yourself, you know? I forgot who did this phrase, but it was like, there are people in this industry that have, you know, had 30 years of experience in it and they're, they're great and they're creative and they're really tuned in and, and moving forward and doing new stuff in this. And then there's other people who've had one year of experience and they've repeated it 30 times and they actually haven't learned anything. And when they're like, I've been doing this for 30 years, like you've done it for one actually, because you didn't grow at all in those three decades. What would you consider your first moment of success for you? My first moment of success was when I was living in San Francisco in 1993. No, 94. I've been doing it for um, six years at that point. It was, that was the first year. I think I earned like $11,000 that year, the whole year. But on $11,000, I could pay my rent. I could eat cheap. I could basically keep my car running. And I'm like, all I have to do is stand up. It was the first year that I only made money doing stand-up. And I was like, I did it. (laughs) I'm a stand-up comedian. Like that felt so amazing to me. And do you have one thing that you feel most comfortable doing? Is it, is it acting, doing the voice? Is it being on stage? I mean, obviously the most comfortable thing for me is stand-up because that's what kind of brung me to the dance. Um, I've become way more comfortable though with, acting and writing. I've been more consistent in my writing. And the next thing I want to do is start, you know, producing and directing. I'm producing a show for Hulu. So we'll see how that goes. And then um, we'll see how directing goes. It'll happen when it happens, you know, Mm -hmm. but um, I just want to, uh, you just, you can't just, it's great to master something and it's great to hone it. All that's great, but you also need new stuff. You need to like make yourself, uncomfortable and and start from scratch every now and then. Mm -hmm. What were some of the influences that you had? Were your parents drawn towards comedy or did they listen to albums? I mean, what were the influences for you? My dad was a huge comedy fan. You know, my parents loved watching the Carol Burnett show and stuff like that. My dad had like Jonathan Winters albums and Steve Martin and all of Bill Cosby stuff. And then my friends turned me on to like George Carlin Richard Pryor, um, Monty Python. We had all those albums. So, you know, I wasn't the class clown. I was in a clique of class clowns. We were all just (laughs) big nerds for comedy, loved all of it, um, and just kind of really got it. So before I started doing stand-up, my influences were Steve Martin and Richard Pryor and Bill Cosby and and George Carlin. And then once I started doing stand-up, my influences just became all of my friends, just my circle of comedians I hung out with. And that's always 
than how it is. It's the most immediate. There's nothing better than getting to hang out with comedians. That's what I fell in love with before the stage stuff was just, oh my God, this hang is amazing. Because up to that point, I had been temping in offices and studying to be a paralegal. And the hang wasn't that fun. The people, we didn't have anything in common. They were nice people, but they weren't, they were just repeating stuff. The people I would hang out with in offices were repeating stuff they had heard the night before on a sitcom or on SNL. When I was hanging out with comedians, they were inventing. I was there at the source where it was being invented. That's where I wanted to be. So the hang got me first and then the stage. Mm -hmm. Who were some of the comedians that you came up with that you were hanging around? Um, Dave Chappelle and I started the same uh, night in D.C. He was 14. Um, This guy, Blaine Kapach. Uh, another guy, Mark Voice, who I was roommates with for a while. Then when I moved to San Francisco, became friends with like Brian Posehn, Margaret Cho, Greg Proops, mm-hmm. you know, people like that. So there's always been just this great circle of hilarious people that I've been lucky enough to get to hang around with. Yeah, it's so interesting the way uh, technology and social media has changed comedy and changed how the voices and the tone and even what you're saying with Twitter, how it it's evolved into its own language. Yeah. And and again, there'll be some other new platform that comes along that changes the language again. Comedy had a very specific language before radio and television. Um, It was a kind of vaudeville pattern that some of it survived radio and TV. Some of it didn't because now suddenly TV, suddenly radio took away the visuals. Then TV brings the visuals back, but not in a live way. So just there were all these different the language will always, always change. What will not change is you being honest and being present when you're being creative. That will always translate through any medium. When I first, when we just started this interview, I mentioned the failure in a sadness bowl and you groaned. <laughs> I'm, well, referencing, I mean, I I'm referencing for <laughs> listeners, if if you haven't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, Patton did a, a little riff on KFC and a new product, which I didn't realize is their most successful selling product of all time. Not their most successful product. It's the most successful fast food product ever, ever. Like they <laughs> absolutely saw where America's going. Slop it together in a bowl. I don't even need to look at it. Just <laughs> beat it into my veins. Just done. I don't care. Um, they, they must, KFC saw... The, the depression coming, I guess, the national sadness, and they, they boy, do they latch onto that. I mean, I didn't groan like, oh, it, it, that was like some, I was very flattered you brought it up, but it was also one of those things where it's like, oh, I, I hope that's not what I am end up being known for. That's the other thing, you, you don't get to choose what you're known for. It's like, it's like the thing that existentialists feared the most was death, because then once you're dead, other people get to define you. Mm-hmm. So there's always that struggle of like, well, how am I going to be defined? Is that going to be the thing that I'm known for? So, you know, there, there's always that. And by the way, that'd be a fine thing to be known for. I like that bit, you know, the, the bit worked and, and it got a lot of attention, but I don't know. You know, you just never know. There, there's always, there's something about being creative where you're like, I'd like to have some control over my, who I am or what I'm mm-hmm. known for. I don't know. You know, I mean, Arthur Conan Doyle wanted to be known as a great historian and he couldn't stand the fact that everyone loved his Sherlock Holmes stories, which he just wrote to pay the rent. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's what made you immortal, dude. And they're pretty good. So boo-hoo. <laughs> we love them in know? this house. All right. So you're working on producing. You're thinking about directing. Your mm-hmm. life seems to be great. Your daughter's thriving. Your wife is awesome. Wife um, is awesome. I saw the, you know, Natty. I remember her as an actress. Uh, oh, God. Meredith yeah. Salinger, I should say. Star of one of the best Disney movies ever made, Journey of Natty Gann. <laughs> That's right. So what advice do you have for all those 50-year-old Los Angelinos uh, now that you're uh, 50, 50 and a half? Um, revel in the wisdom, even if you got it in embarrassing ways, even if you're looking back on, oh, I know better because I burned down a decade of my life. Just own that. Like, be Look at the way the Europeans own um, doddering old age. They make it look so cool. Just own that and revel in it. Revel in your wisdom and know that uh, there's like, there's stuff that's important to 20 year olds that I know isn't important and I don't need to waste my time on it anymore. But also don't white knuckle your youth and begrudge other people. Let them be young and be stupid and make mistakes. Get the hell out of the way. You know, be Pete Townsend, not John Entwistle. When when hip hop started and John Entwistle, the Who, was talking to Pete Townsend, he's like, I don't get this. What is this? And Pete was like, it's not our job to get it. It's our job to get out of the way because it's their turn now. There are people that didn't mm-hmm. get us and we just wanted them to get out of the way. We got to get out of the way now. Mm-hmm. So get out of the way. <laughs> what are you listening? <laughs> What's your new music that you're getting? Are you absorbing any new music? Um, there's a band uh, called Bleached, ironically enough. That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, another band called A Place to Bury the Dead. I mean, I have friends that are always, and I've 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 gone down a huge hole of the band Sparks, which I never was really into. And a friend, um, the director Edgar Wright, sent mm. me this whole Spotify mix of just Sparks tunes, and I am obsessed with them now. They're so good. So funny. Um, I haven't yeah. heard of them, so that that oh Sparks. Go start listening. <laughs> All right. You'll I love will, it. I will have a lot of takeaways. Congratulations on everything. And as always, I will thank just, you. I will be here waiting to see what comes next. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining me. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.